Hey everyone, this is Paul Kingsbury. Welcome to the Cutlass Podcast, where we provide fresh perspectives to help you become a more sturdy, versatile, incredible leader and manager. Engage with us online at cutlassleadership.com and like and follow my Facebook page. And send me your questions and topic suggestions to cutlassleadership at gmail.com. Enjoy this episode. In Chapter 1 of the Chief Petty Officer's Guide, titled Understanding and Meeting the Expectations of Being the Chief Petty Officer, I wrote, There are many Chief Petty Officer leadership and management roles and activities that enable and ensure warfighting readiness and mission success. Chief's Mess culture, which is the collection of Chief's Mess behaviors, is shaped by a foundation of strong values, beliefs, and attitudes. Today, my guests are retired Mass Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, Vince Patton, and U.S. Coast Guard boatswain's mate, Chief Phil Knoll. They're here with me to discuss how U.S. Coast Guard operations and culture inherently develops leadership attributes that align with those of Cutlass leadership, strength, agility, and getting up close and personal. Vince is a native of Detroit, Michigan, and retired from the U.S. Coast Guard 1 November of 2002 after serving 30 years of active duty. His career included staff and operational assignments afloat and ashore throughout the United States and a joint military service assignment in Cuba and Haiti. He became the first African-American selected as the service's senior most enlisted ranking position as a Mass Chief Petty to the Coast Guard in 1998 and served as, in that position as the 8th Mass Chief Petty to the Coast Guard from May 1998 to October 2002. As a service top senior enlisted leader and ombudsman, he was the principal advisor to the Commandant of the Coast Guard, his directorates, and the secretaries of transportation and defense, with primary focus on quality of life issues, career development, work environment, and personnel matters, affecting over 40,000 active duty, reserve enlisted, and civilian personnel service-wide. He currently serves on a variety of boards and is involved with the U.S. Sea Cadet Program and serves as the president of the Non-Commissioned Officers Association. Phil is a native of Charleston, West Virginia, and joined the Coast Guard in 2007. He is an accomplished operator and has served across the range of search and rescue, law enforcement, and disaster response missions. He has been stationed in San Francisco, Miami, New Jersey, Puerto Rico, Ohio, and Virginia, and he is currently serving as the lead underway instructor as the, at the U- U.S. Coast Guard's Boatswain Mate A School in Yorktown, Virginia. He has a bachelor's degree in emergency and disaster management from American Military University, and he writes extensively and has been published in a variety of magazines and journals. In 2018, he was the second place winner for the U.S. Naval Institute's U.S. Coast Guard Essay Contest, and he is also the co-host and creator of the They Had to Go Out podcast. So welcome, guys, to the Cutlass Podcast. Thank you for taking some time to join me. How's everything going, Vince? Oh, outstanding. And how about you, Phil? Yeah, hey, Paul. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, especially with uh, with such a distinguished guest as uh, as Vince Patton. I uh, you know I feel a little uh, a little starstruck as always uh, when I'm talking to him. So <laughs> very cool to be on the show uh, with him and get his insight on this topic. Absolutely, I I agree. And thanks again for joining me. So all right, let's get to it. From each of your perspectives, what is it about the nature of U.S. Coast Guard operations and culture that shapes the leadership attributes and behaviors of its frontline leaders, and how has it shaped each of your leadership styles? Uh, Phil, let's start with you. Sure, Paul. So I think uh, you know most important is probably to start with what the Coast Guard does, and I think uh, I think they boil it down pretty well into three uh, three main objectives, and that's to protect those on the sea, protect against threats delivered by the sea, and to protect the sea itself. 
Uh, to accomplish those three objectives, uh, we've got a whole uh, series of principles of Coast Guard operations. The one that I find most impactful, or the one that I use the most, it seems, would be on-scene initiative. Uh, if something occurs on the water and there's a federal interest or any kind of, basically anything that happens on the water, there is going to be a Coast Guard presence there. There's going to be some kind of Coast Guard interest in the uh, in what happens. And often you're dispatched to a case or, or whatever may have happened on the water with no amplifying information. And really your only job at, at the time of the call is to go out and put eyes on. And when you, when you put eyes on, the very next step would be on-scene initiative. What did we find? How do we make it better? And then how, uh, you know, how can we, can we just resolve the situation and put it to bed? So that's kind of the principles of, uh, or that's, that's the main principle I see that makes the Coast Guard most successful. That's why you see it uh, celebrated for its, its uh, reaction to Katrina. You know, every hurricane that you've seen lately flooding across the country and um, in all manner of operations is because the Coast Guard empowers the people that are on scene to, uh, to make the call and do what they need to do to, uh, to resolve situations and, uh, and make them better. How about you, Vince? Well, I tell you, Phil has uh, kind of nailed it, uh, particularly with talking about just how diverse as well as how awesome the mission responsibilities are of the Coast Guard. So with that said, bring it closer to the, the uh, purpose of this particular podcast subject about Chief Petty Officers as a whole is that uh, it's a small organization to do the multitude of things that the Coast Guard does. And with, uh, with, with 40 plus thousand active duty men and women, along with uh, nearly 10,000 reservists, and to be uh, scattered about throughout the world, not just in the United States. Coast Guard does more than just the name implies. Uh, we, you know, we're more than just guarding the coast, uh, uh, as, as Phil had pointed out uh, so brilliantly about the missions that the Coast Guard do, is that they're done. And they're done with about 84% of the workforce being enlisted. And therefore, the chief petty officers uh, uh, really have a monumental task, regardless of the, of the specialties that each particular chief petty officer is in, is that uh, uh, there is a significant amount of responsibilities that chiefs face in what they do. Okay. Um, so in the Navy, we have this concept of control my negation. It's a culture aspect. So because we go out to sea... Um, because commanding officers operate away from their commanders, they operate off guidance and intent. So they, you know, we develop a culture at sea of doing things without necessarily being told what has to be done. We kind of inherently know, as opposed to other services where we've seen you know, wait for an order to be given to do something. Is there a similar similar kind of culture by negation in the attribute of Coast Guard leaders? Well, you know, I'll, I'll start off first and say I think in the history of the Coast Guard itself, and then and then not particularly looking at the enlisted pay grades, and uh, you pretty much you know you as you move up the scale on each particular pay grade, different ratings and so forth, is that you have to master not just what your skill is. And your specialty, be you a bosun mate, be you a yeoman or whatever, but to also master what the mission of that operation of the unit that you are involved with. That's even more important because on a, particularly on a ship, everybody gets involved, uh, be they the, the culinary specialist, uh, to the machinery technician, to the bosun mate and so forth and all in between. Everybody gets involved with the focus of that mission. So that means that 
uh, you don't stand around and wait until you hear somebody tells you what to do. You walk across the brow understanding what the mission of that unit is all about and how you become an integral part of that unit's mission. Phil, any thoughts on that? Yeah, 100%. I mean, you can't. I, that was airtight. Um, Master Chief Patton, I, and that's why uh, that's why I'm awestruck to be on the podcast with you for sure. Uh, the only thing I would add is, you know, again, uh, another principle of Coast Guard operations is, is clear objective, and the objective's you know pretty clear from that: uh, protect those on the sea, protect against threats delivered by the sea, and protect the sea itself. Those are the overall objectives. Um, when it comes down to it, uh, you know, guys are whatever their recession point is, have been trained, uh, you know, in the core values. And, uh, and trained to look in those SOPs and, and make themselves better so that they can go out there and make a difference. And I think that's where, uh, where chiefs come in, you know, ensuring that that training's done, that people understand the objective. And then when they're called out, even if they don't know the specifics of the call, we've done our due diligence to, to allow them to make, uh, make good decisions while they're out there and not worsen the situation. All right, so Phil, I got a question for you. Um, you know, to put this into practical terms for people. So, do you have a good sea story uh, from your either law enforcement experiences or search and rescue, where you had to make a tough decision or be up close and personal on scene and flexible in one of these situations with search and rescue or law enforcement ops? And if so, uh, I know you've been in those situations, but what would you offer to the listeners of what they can learn from those? Sure. Um, I think the so, so when you join the Coast Guard, my first uh, my first unit, I was immediately thrust into operations. I mean, there's no there's no bystanders in the Coast Guard. You're, we're too short staffed to, to allow it. So you know, I'm immediately stand and watch, taking distress calls, following the sheets, getting guidance from from guys that are uh, more senior than me. I'm on the boats, watching more than doing probably uh, search and rescue cases, but. Uh, it takes a couple years to, to kind of build up to the level of uh, coxswain. That's the uh, that's the position that, that leads all of our boat crews out there. But uh, the one that really brought it home for me was when you're in charge. So I'm in charge as the coxswain of the boat. I've only been a coxswain for a little while. Uh, up to this point, I've done a few tows, probably recovered a few people from the water, but nothing uh, truly dramatic. And we get a call of a, uh, a 36-foot charter boat. Uh, sinking off Ocean Beach, California, right off the San Francisco coastline. And it's got 36 people on board. Wow. Yeah, that presents challenges in itself. And then when uh, when you arrive on scene, because it probably took about 20 minutes to get there in eight-foot seas, uh, when you arrive on scene, the boat is no more. It is gone. It is uh, sank to the bottom of the ocean. Whoa. Uh, and now we've got 36 people. I don't know where they're at. I see a ton of light jackets and debris in the water. I see a whole bunch of other Good Samaritan charter boats picking people out of the water. And, you know, obviously with more people on deck than they would normally have, I, I don't know where it came from. I don't know if it was just, uh, you know, some of the experiences that I'd had before. But the only thing I could think was you know, start the count, right? Let's, let's figure out where these people are. And somehow it just kind of came through. Uh, we were able to count these people, figure out who was the, uh, the most um, in a bad medical way transfer some uh, some first aid supplies and some crewmen to those boats to start CPR and, and try and do what we could figure out that I'm pretty sure that we've got everyone or uh, I know that we've got the bulk of them but I also know that we got people dying trying to make way back to shore we need some oxygen so I'm the only person on the boat at this point I had four crewmen at one time transferred them all to other uh, to some of the charter boats with, with injured parties and a helicopter arrives on scene and they're like what can we do 
And I was like, well, these guys are asking for oxygen. Could you, could you send a swimmer down? No, we don't have a swimmer. Well, normally the swimmer is the guy that comes out of the, out of the helicopter and, and helps transport the gear. They're EMT certified. They're, you know, jacks of all trades that do a great job, but they didn't have anybody. So the helicopter crews can find an airframe. I'm on the boat alone. So I just put it in autopilot, went to the back deck, and they uh, they dropped the oxygen to me, which is probably just a, a giant no-no, right? Uh, you you yeah. don't generally leave boats without someone at the helm. Uh, but it only took a few seconds, and I felt the benefit outweighed the risk. But it goes to show that everything that prepares you to make those on-scene decisions, you just have to be teachable. Um, you know, all your life experience, whatever it is, all your professional experience, take it in. Use everything as an opportunity to learn, and uh, and don't miss those lessons that you can take from other people's uh, failures, bad decisions, or or even worse indecision. Uh, I've seen yeah. indecision cripple a ton of um, a ton of responses in the past, and I think that was that's really something that I've tried to guard against is just indecision. Oh, I was gonna say I, that's definitely a topic that I'm going to discuss in a few future episode uh, specifically about decision making. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's critical. At the, at the end of the day, if you're there in your position to make a decision and the decision is going to make it make a difference, then just make the call, you know, and, and deal with the consequences later. Absolutely. If you're doing it for the right reasons, nobody's going nobody's gonna to question it. Yeah, James and I, Parlier, on the last episode discussed that. So uh, so I, I can't help but think in the Coast Guard through your training, your training helps instill these beliefs and attitudes in you, right? So when you're ready to go out on a scene like this, you've got to be focused with a certain belief system like, hey, we got, you know, like your podcast, right? They had to go out, right? That's a belief and an you know a belief system that leads to an attitude that I think enables you to overcome the fear and uncertainty with those operations. Is there also an attitude developed of or belief system that we don't leave anyone behind? Can you speak to those attitudes? Sure. So, I, you know, and the Coast Guard's adapted and changed, and I've heard a lot of kind of a bad take on, on some of the risk management practices. But risk management's a, a, a critical thing that makes sure that we don't make situations worse. And I think if you look at it, you know, from a, an understanding perspective of, hey, we go out there and risk our lives all the time, but do we always do it intelligently? It starts to make sense. So that's the risk management piece has kind of changed that whole they had to go out thing. Okay. Uh, but what I, what I think has replaced it, though, and I just heard the commandant, uh, former commandant of the Coast Guard, Thad Allen. He just uh, he just addressed the uh, Coast Guard Academy class in their first uh, first virtual graduation, and he put it pretty well that uh, at his first unit, his mantra, and I think this is a mantra that, that stands today, is "No one dies on my watch." I mean, that's what you kind of go out with. We're we're not going to allow people to die on our watch. If, if there's anything we can do to make a difference, we don't allow them to die on our watch. Okay, and that's reflective in that. I mean, the the movie kind of comes to mind that really shapes some attitudes about your 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 uninformed person about the Coast Guard is the movie Kevin Costner was in, right? That that's reflected in his attitude. Right, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, in just history itself, there's a, a long legacy of lifesavers um, that have went out there, hazarded themselves, made, made a difference, and something that you're ingrained in from, from recruit training on. Uh, we're naming our cutters after enlisted heroes, our 154-foot FRCs after enlisted heroes, and, it, you know, it all just gives an example for us to follow. Nobody wants to be the, the person that, uh, that drops that legacy. Okay, one other thing I want to ask you. So, obviously, these are tough conditions, austere conditions, a variety of weather conditions, whether it's you're in tropics, you're in heavy seas, you're in cold climates, and you have to do this, right? So how do you help you yourself actually and your team maintain a positive attitude when you find yourself in those tough situations? 
Okay, I've got two thoughts on that one. So, so number one, I think whenever uh, whenever you're you're out there, you know that your duty is to to carry on to the scene and and you know affect whatever uh, whatever operation you have to. So you kind of you you start just focusing on the mission. You focus on the on the fundamentals, and uh, that focus removes everything else, all those other outliers. On a more like uh, maybe a deeper level, I, I'll take it back to San Francisco again. We used to recover uh, suicide victims from the Golden Gate Bridge, which was probably that's probably the worst duty that I've ever done. I can imagine. And we're talking dozens a year. And what I noticed uh, when I was, especially when I was younger, you know, every time the alarm went off, it was an opportunity, an opportunity to go out and get engage in something exciting, right? Even if it was a suicide. Uh, there was still the chance that you could you could recover him from the water alive. I've only seen it happen twice on on my watch, but uh, every time we went out with the expectation that we could make a difference. The thing that uh, they kind of really brought home the impact that has on you were the veterans that would return three decades after being assigned to that unit. You know, they've they've long yeah. since retired, had kids that grew up, and they would still come back and uh, and just kind of want to shoot the breeze, just just talk about. Hey, how's the station going? How are things? And it would always come up. Do you still get jumpers? And then they would they would go into that uh, that storyline. Um, but I think that that's telling that you got to talk about it. Uh, talk about those. You know, talk about what stinks. If it's the weather that day, just start talking about it, and, and it'll make it a little easier to carry on. Because uh, there's some power in shared misery. I think uh, if everybody's everybody's kind of experiencing the same thing. It, uh, it reaffirms that, yep, this isn't great, but we're all going to make it through. Awesome. Okay. So, Vince, uh, this year marks the centennial of the raid of the U.S. Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer. You briefly mentioned them a little bit ago. Um, so, happy anniversary, I guess, or birthday to both of you. Neither of you looks a day over 60, I guess I would say. <laughs> uh, so, but, you know, tell us a bit about this value and belief systems and this legacy of the chief petty officers that underlie the attitudes and behaviors of Coast Guard chief petty officers today. What do you got on that, Vince? Uh, when we talk about the legacy of the chief petty officers, it, it, it ties in a great deal with our Coast Guard core values of honor, respect, and devotion to duty. And I think you can take each of those phrases of honor, respect, and devotion to duty and tie it directly into what you expect out of what chief petty officers are about and what they do. Uh, chief says a whole, they go through the, the ritual of sorts that when they become a chief petty officer is, is uh, your, your first name changes from from uh, when you're petty officer so-and-so to chief. Uh, but more important beyond that is uh, more reminders of what was being told that you're taking on a whole new set of responsibilities, not just for what you have to do, but to become the senior mentor of the organization. And I mean senior in terms of mentoring people junior to you and mentoring people senior to you as well. And I, I look at my career as uh, probably the best way of seeing success of my career is looking at the people who I have worked with, uh, not just from the very junior level, but also from the senior level, and and, and, and become very delighted, for me anyway, that uh, the new influence that I first met and so forth, and they all grew up to become captains and admirals and so forth, is you know, I'd rather say that I was part of that, that they were patent trained, as the case may be. And, and, and that's because of the fact that we have a very awesome organization that takes such respect of a group of pay grades in seven, eight, nine, and knowing how important it is in order to carry out the mission of the Coast Guard as a whole. So 
it's a lot more than just uh, putting on the anchor. Uh, you take on the organization as being part of its legacy. And, and I think that makes every person become a chief petty officer in the Coast Guard field. All right. So, Phil, you know, speaking of value, belief, attitudes, and legacy, you know, we're often shaped by chief petty officers that go before us. We model behaviors. We model a lot of things and we learn from the attitudes and the actions of, of chief petty officers, especially in the Coast Guard and the Navy. So who are those chief petty officers that come to mind for you and what were the things, the specific things you learned from them that you apply still today? Sure. I got uh, two examples for you, Paul. And, and one was actually more recent after I made chief because uh, when you make when you make chief, you start caring about uh, you know, what it takes to be one. And I think uh, a former Master Chief Petty Officer of the Coast Guard, Steve Cantrell, he tells a story uh, about when he was younger, had an issue. They told him to go talk to the chief. He goes up to the door, and uh, I kind of wrote, took a note here. He doesn't remember what he asked the chief or what the hell he told me. But it didn't matter because what I remember was that he took that extra second for me when I know he didn't have the time, when I knew he was busy. So when people want to talk to you, to knock on your door, to tap on your shoulder, how you react can have an effect on that person for a generation. Don't forget those things, particularly for those young folks who are looking up and wanting to be like you. How you react to them can really affect them uh, 20 or 30 years down the road. And I think, you know, I think we've all been in that situation where we ask, ask the boss uh, or, you know, a senior uh, senior listed uh, chief at some point a question and maybe we were ignored. And, uh, you know, I just take it as a as a fraction. If, if it's uh, if I have any chance not to ignore someone and to make them a priority, that's that's kind of what I do. Um, and I thought that was really impactful because uh, obviously it's still uh, resonating with Master Chief Cantrell, you know, over 30 years later. Uh, after after that story happened, and uh, it, the other one, Paul, was it kind of speaks to the name of uh, of your podcast. Uh, this was pre Chief Petty Officers, but uh, as chiefs are are charged with maintaining the heritage of the uh, of the service, I uh, I read this cool thing uh, when I was trying to figure out uh, you know when we last carried cutlasses in the Coast Guard and how we can get them back because unlike the Navy, we uh, we don't wear them with our, our dress uniforms, but. Uh, saw a quote attributed to the commanding officer of the Revenue Cutter Service's own Civil War era ironclad. I didn't even know we had an ironclad uh, Revenue Cutter uh, Nagatuck. Uh, mm-hmm. She actually sailed with a monitor that, uh, of the Chesapeake just from where you and I are located and just south of uh, where Master Chief Patton is. Traded shots with the CSS Virginia, a couple of shoreside, uh, shoreside forts as well. And uh, as the CO was inventorying the armament before this thing sailed, uh, he reported 12 pounders, 12 muskets, uh, 12 pistols, 12 cutlasses ready to sail. And I just thought that was really cool. And it speaks to the uh, to the Navy podcast because, you know, an ironclad is probably the heavy, you know, that thing's made to trade heavy shot, heavy cannon shot. Uh, when the fighting gets close, if you're boarding an enemy vessel or repelling uh, a boarding of your own boat, the crews would have to use, or they, you know, they would first use rifles and pistols. The cutlasses, though, the cutlasses provided a capability that didn't need powder, time to load, and you could use it for offense or defense. So, the, like, the most versatile weapon that they had, right, to go to. When all else failed, the cutlass is what they had. So, thought that was a cool uh, cool piece of history. You know, Revenue Cutter, back during Civil War, made sure that the cutlasses were on board. Yeah, that's uh, that's an awesome bit of history to know that Coast Guard was involved with that. I didn't know that either. So, uh, and that's a good segue because I was going to say, you know, that I chose, you know, I was thinking of the concept of the Cutlass podcast, um, the attributes of the Cutlass, as you said, right? So it's, 
you know, it's strong, it's sturdy, it's versatile. You can use it for a variety of applications and then you can get up and close and personal with it. And I, I just thought that's how enlisted leadership is and that's how we lead or how we've been taught to lead. So how do you guys think, uh, and Vince, I'll start with you. How's the leadership style of the cheese mess changed or evolved over the past hundred years or so from what's your, what's your perspective? Well, I think that it's changed uh, to the good, of course, that when we go back to May 18th, 1920, when Chief Petty Officers uh, first became part of the ranks of the Coast Guard, that uh, it, it was at a, in, in its infancy stage of where uh, the Coast Guard, from the time it was formed, was more officer-regulated uh, and orientated, that all of a sudden you're using enlisted personnel to be part of that supervisory status. It took shape, uh, probably more so from the uh, shore side than the shipboard side, that being that uh, uh, the old life-saving stations and so forth were, uh, they were pretty much run by chief petty officers, to, uh, to where I think the, the culture of the Coast Guard in the 20s and 30s began to really mold around the fact that you had these very seasoned veteran Coast Guardsmen who were chief petty officers that uh, more than knew their stuff, but, uh, but pretty much uh, had the best way of how to process from a training aspect, process from a mentoring aspect, aspect as well. And then as we go through the years throughout the other parts of the Coast Guard history, uh, through World War II, and so on and so forth, uh, Chief Petty Officers has continually uh, 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 not just maintained, but excelled more so in that level of mentoring. And I, I always like to use the phrase, when I think of Chief Petty Officers, I think of, of mentors. You know, that that phrase of, of being senior mentors of of the Coast Guard's organization, because that's what they are. Today, chief petty officers are are looked upon uh, by both up and down the chain of command of people with that expertise to uh, not just work within the system, but also be sort of the care, the ones that carry out the missions of the system. And they do that very, very well. So uh, I, I think every year has been better. And I think and I, it's been 18 years since I've retired from the Coast Guard, and I can tell you, as I look uh, uh, at the past 18 years after I've left, that uh, the Coast Guard has left far better than, than when I left, and not that it was bad when I was in at the time. It's, it was great, and it just continued to get better, and I, I owe that a lot to the Chiefs and to the senior leadership of the Coast Guard that continued to positively lean on the Chiefs uh, in the world of leadership. Okay. So Phil, what do you think? Some maybe growing up under a different generation of chief petty officer, have you seen a change in the leadership style or approaches of the chiefs? I'm assuming that we've all had that salty chief, uh, you know, that influenced when we were, we were younger. Um, that was just kind of, uh, uh, no nonsense, no, um, no fun. I, I won't say that those, uh, that's a bad way to lead whatsoever. It's just, it's just a different way. So what, yeah, what, what I've seen kind of develop was, I've never just looked at a chief as a technical expert. There are also people that middle managers basically that, that know their people and can communicate that people part of it up the chain of command that when it often wouldn't otherwise. Um, and that's one of the hugest benefits that I see of chiefs is that they work on the deck plate. They work with people. Uh, and these are human beings, right? They have human problems and, and human issues. And I think we've gotten really good about communicating those up, up the chain to, to find resolution for it. And then, uh, you know, you always hear uh, challenge the process. I, I'm sure that uh, I, I can tell you for a fact that uh, those chiefs back in 1920, 
uh, when the life-saving service and the, and the revenue cutter service merged and you had all these stations that were ran by chiefs, I'm sure those guys challenged the process just trying to uh, trying to find a place for the life-saving stations among the uh, the more popular maybe revenue cutters. Uh, and I, I don't think anything's changed. I think chiefs have just uh, continued on with that legacy. Uh, they continue to ask questions, to, uh, to develop themselves, challenge the process, and, and make sure there's not that frozen middle. Yeah. Although the tone and the approach, the delivery of that might be different, we all care about making our service and our organization, our teams better. Uh, some do that better than others. And just the way that things were tolerated back then, it was a different generation, a different context to lead in. But, uh, you know, the attributes that uh, we still expect across generations, right? So when I talk about expert power base, Chiefs have always been expected to have high expert power, and they will continue to expect or be expected to have that. They will be expected to use a strong base of personal power because those two, when you have high personal power and high expert power, right, you're a person who knows what they're talking about, knows kind of what to do, can leverage experience, and leads in a firm but fair way. You really develop some credibility uh, with your reputation, and then you get that trust with your teams and with trust – you can lead and develop buy-in that allows you to lead beyond just your positional power. No question about it that uh, the chief petty officers of today are, are, are a bit more sophisticated in a sense of both academically. I mean, you know, in the intro, uh, you know, you mentioned about myself as well as uh, Chief Noel, you know, Chief Noel uh, holding a bachelor's degree and so forth. You know, when I came in in 1972, that was that was not the norm. Today, it is the norm that you find a lot of our senior enlisted people who are, are sporting uh, college degrees, uh, bachelor's, master's. Uh, and, and I think part of that sophistication is that as we have come along uh, through the time of service, that senior leadership has quickly recognized that chief petty officers that are placed in roles and responsibilities that they have today clearly have a lot more. Uh, both in terms of the academic expertise as well as the personal power that the leadership of working together with people a lot more being seen today. Yeah, one difference I see definitely with Coast Guard and Navy, and I've I've written about this and talked about this, is with you know getting back to positional power. Um, and and certain positions give you you know you get responsibilities to fulfill, but you get these authorities. Coast Guard has done, just because of the nature of the Coast Guard, right, the chief petty officers have been given responsibilities and authorities that we don't see on the Navy side or I don't think you see in many other services, commanding, like you said, life-saving stations and, and leadership positions that we would see in the Navy that are reserved for solely for officers that Coast Guard chief petty officers are doing. Phil, what are some examples of those? Make a, a great point. I think that's a, a point of distinction for, for the service itself and then especially for the most of rating. Most of your uh, multi-mission boat stations, uh, many of your small cutters, which are uh, that are white hole and black hole, we differentiate white holes to multi-mission black holes, aids to navigation units, and then a lot of your aids to navigation teams are, are ran by senior enlisted um, from the E7 to E9 level. They would not be an exception to the rule. I would say, in large part, enlisted people uh, lead those subordinate units. Um, Officers generally are placed at higher commands in the Coast Guard, whether it be a sector, which will generally cover a, a pretty big geographic area. For example, there's Sector Virginia that covers the entire Virginia coastline, and then, uh, and then you know, as the uh, as they go up, and then larger cutters too, uh, well above 65 feet in the in the 210 and 154 foot or more range. Okay, uh, so another power base 
Then I talk about my you know, CPO power and uh, influence model, and it's just fundamental um, power-based theory. is called connection power. Power that you gain through the relationships and the networks that you form that provide you access to resources and information that you might not otherwise have. So as you know, the Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer's Mess and the Navy Chief Petty Officer's Mess is a huge network. It goes service-wide, it goes worldwide, and it definitely strengthens each Chief Petty Officer's connection power base. So Vince... Uh, what are your insights on the importance of this service-wide network and how it serves as a force multiplier? Probably the best way to say how it really connects well is that uh, today's chief's call to initiation, the CCTI process, is uh, is really one of the best conduits that bring the chiefs closer together as well as making that connection overall uh, throughout the rest of the Coast Guard. Uh, today's chiefs are are, are, are pretty much... Uh, step into a, a pattern to be able to understand their responsibilities better. When the creed of the chief petty officer is read, it's read with that definition of just how important your responsibilities are to the mission of the organization and to the people who carry out the mission as a whole. And it's uh, and it's done very very well. I, you know, I, I look back to when I became a chief in 1983 when. We had the old chief's initiation process, which really didn't have uh, and that what's in it for me kind of thing as today's CCTI does. Uh, the CCTI really has, has molded more into that you have to do it because it is the best way to be able to make that interconnectivity uh, throughout the Coast Guard, both up and down the chain of command. The junior people look up to you with uh, a, 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 a intense amount of, of of admiration and respect and the people senior to you look at you as more of a collective peer than just someone who happens to be senior to you. So I see that really transforming uh, exceptionally well and throughout the course, course of my career that I witnessed that transformation occur, particularly during the, the 80s and into the 90s and by the time I retired and and a day, it's just secondhand. This is the way it is. Okay. Phil, what's uh, been your experience since you've been in the cheese mess about that power of the cheese mess and what's it enable you to do? What I've always seen chiefs do that was uh, that was most unique, and this is all the way from when I was junior, is when you had a problem, you went to the chief and the chief fixed it, right? How did they do that? And when you enter the cheese mess, you figure out how they did it. It's because of that connection power. If you pick up the phone and call another chief with an issue, Without fail, that chief will drop what they're doing and help you resolve that issue. If something at command's not right, you have a united front to kind of uh, broach the topic with with more senior officers and try and try and find a better way ahead. Uh, same thing going down. If you have a if you have a uh, more junior coast guardsman who's struggling, you now have a united front to kind of guide them in a better way and make them a, a contributing member of the service and uh, for their country. Okay. Uh, yeah. And for the listeners, right. Uh, you may not have a specific mess, um, if you're in the civilian sector, but I can't understate the importance of networking and professional organizations. So in many cases, you might not have this in-house network that you can go to or connection power base, but you can through professional networks, 
associations and other things develop this power base that, you know, it, it really does. It expands your information power base. It expands your expert power base. It gives you access to resources and help. So seek out whatever that is in your profession, warfare community. Everyone's got one usually, but those things are valuable, and uh, I encourage you to seek those out. So, so hey, Paul, can, Paul, can I can I can I interrupt you just real? Yes. Uh, uh, one thing that I want to add to this is uh, something that I witnessed uh, uh, just uh, a, a few years ago that the Chiefs has been very involved with. Uh, the, it was the, it was the issue surrounding uh, sexual harassment and sexual discrimination. Chiefs mess throughout the Coast Guard took this on themselves with uh, and the not-in-my-co-start pitch that they pointed out, that uh, it was a cheese mess that really handled this. Now, cheese mess should have been doing this all along, and I, I, and I would say they probably have, but I think the best united front that I had witnessed seeing uh, after my leaving the Coast Guard was how the cheese mess uh, really formed together with the not-in-my-co-start campaign on uh, on eradicating uh, uh, sexual harassment, sexual discrimination cases, and 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 I applaud the chiefs even today of, of just their involvement, and and they are very serious about it as a whole. And I was very proud to see how chiefs mess across across the Coast Guard. Uh, they got very involved. All right. Are there other connection power groups or associations below the level of chief petty officer that Coast Guardsmen should or could be involved with? Sure. Uh, you know, the CPOA, there's the Chief Petty Officers Association, which is a nonprofit, but uh, but also holds regular meetings, right, and, and gets people together. There's the Chief's Mess, uh, which is is more of a, a local unit kind of thing, all the way up to – and more of a professional nature – uh, you've got the Coast Guard Enlisted Association, which is uh, it's for anyone uh, enlisted that's uh, below E7. They're actually sponsored by the uh, Chief Petty Officers Association. But another great way to get out, uh, meet like-minded people that want to make a difference, you know, have regular meetings, uh, elect officers to kind of voice your, your problems up. Um, and then, like you said, professional organizations. I I know uh, the U.S. Navy wants to do the work to, to bring people together and, and help bring uh, issues to light. Great initiative. The Non-Commissioned Officers Association that I'm hearing a lot about uh, recently is, uh, is another way to, to get out there and meet people. Yeah, I think I think if you look for it, you'll find it. P- people want to uh, socialize, especially after they've been stuck inside uh, quarantine for, for so long at this point. I think uh, a lot of people would do anything to, uh, to make some connections. Okay. So let's talk a bit about, uh, you know, we've mentioned the Chief Petty Officer Creed. There's a lot of mantras out there. So... You know, focusing in on this concept of value and beliefs when you're trying to shape behaviors or develop your own, every person's attitude and actions are shaped or underlied by a system of value and beliefs, right? And some of those we bring into the service with us, they can be good, they can be bad. Uh, hopefully, we get aligned to a good value system. In your case, it's Coast Guard core values. Navy has core values, right? Maybe there's core values that go with the profession of being a doctor, a lawyer, whatever you have. Some of those have creeds that we take, right, that really state these values, beliefs, standards of our profession or our community. They, they speak to loyalty within that organization. And then they're often, you know, small mantras that come out that reflect it. So, for example, on the Navy side, we often say, you know, results, not excuses or ask the chief kind of underlie the expectation that chiefs can get things done or that they should have a high uh, expert power base. What's your favorite mantra on the Coast Guard side, Phil? So I guess we steal the navies. I mean, you guys didn't have chiefs first, but uh, my favorite would be ask the chief because I, I think it's uh, one. It's a it's a kind of a vote of confidence in yourself and in your peers within the chief's mess. 
And then two, it's a it's a call to action for you to have that answer or know where to find it. Um, so it, it kind of goes both ways. I, I definitely like Ask the Chief. I think it sets sets the right tone and the right expectation for anybody wearing an anchor. Okay, Vince, what's resonated with you as a chief? Well, uh, it's uh, it's part of the creed. More will be expected of you. More will be demanded of you. I mean, that, I think that kind of says it all. When you put those anchors on, they're pretty doggone heavy as, as you place them on. That you're placed in a new level of responsibility uh, that as you look across the other pay grades of the Coast Guard as a whole, uh, be it officer or junior enlisted and so forth, responsibilities of chiefs are extremely unique. So, All right. So any last thoughts on uh, leadership and management tactics or approaches that listeners can learn from U.S. Coast Guard Chief Petty Officer leadership approaches? Vince, we'll start with you. Well, for me, you know, I'm a core values kind of guy, not just from what the Coast Guard's core values are, but everyone has personal core values. So you take the organizational core values, which, of course, the Coast Guard's is honor, respect, and devotion to duty. And from that, what are your personal core values to make up, to be successful, to execute the mission and the core values of the Coast Guard? Uh, Everybody has them. And I think that for, uh, for me, what I've always said to new ch- to new chiefs was to uh, define what your personal core values are and how it relates and how it sets apart from what you do to carry out your job as uh, what the Coast Guard requires you to do. All right. How about you, Phil? Yeah, Paul, I think um, some of the, well, I'll just leave you with this, the, uh, the guiding principles uh, for chief petty officers within the Coast Guard. And these might, uh, might translate over to the Navy, but a chief, we consider an acronym, compassion, heritage, integrity, expertise, flexibility. Those are those, uh, those unique responsibilities that are going to be demanded of you, as Master Chief said. All right, guys. Thanks again. My guests today have been retired Master Chief Pettis of the Coast Guard, Vince Patton, and Chief Boson's mate, Phil Knoll. Thanks, uh, Vince and Phil, for your insights and joining me today. Thank you for having us. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. So some questions for our audiences today to reflect on. I would offer the first one is, what are the core values and beliefs of your professional organization, and how well are your personal value and beliefs aligned with those and enhancing those other value and belief systems? The second thing you could ask yourself for self-reflection is, what are the desired leadership and management attributes of my current job or profession, and how well am I executing those and developing them further? And then the third thing you should ask is, what does your current attitude about your profession, organization, or job reveal about your value and belief system? Are they aligned or misaligned with what they should be, and what are you doing about it? Thanks again for listening to the Cutlass Podcast. If you want to learn more about the topic we've discussed today or in other episodes, check out the Chief Petty Officer's Guide or the other resources I'll list in the episode description. To provide me feedback or suggest topics for future episodes, please email me at cutlassleadership at gmail.com. I'm Paul Kingsbury. Take time to work hard and keep your leadership cutlass sharp. I want you to read, listen, discuss, reflect, and then take what you learn and go make a positive difference in your professional and personal life.